It's time for the Turf Grand Zealot audio cast. From the worldwide command center of intergalactic turf heads, it's the Turf Grand Zealot audio cast. Only on Turfnet Radio. With the chief turf head, the guru of fescue, the Alatollah of iron, Mr. Dave Wilbur. There's only one zealot, only on Turfnet Radio. I don't know of a more influential media figure in golf than Peter Kessler. Peter was the uh, really, to me, the real heart and soul of the Golf Channel, especially when it first got going. I've admired this guy for years. I, in a way, have tried to figure out how to copy his interviewing style and so many times I wish that it was me sitting there in that kind of living room set that they had speaking to all the greats I'm telling you man Peter Kessler I don't know who's spent more time with more great golfers than Peter but the other thing about this guy was that he he knew the game so well, you know, from the inside out, all that stuff. So when Peter Kessler sort of appeared on social media and started to follow me and every once in a while would comment on my Twitter posts, I would think, wow, wow, that's amazing. Not long ago, I reached out to Peter and I said, hey, would you, uh, would you be a podcast guest? I'm considering getting my podcast going again. And I'd like you to be my first my first podcast guest for the kind of new series. And he he didn't hesitate. He just said yes. He said yes right away. What a I'm telling you, this is an amazing guy. So Peter and I had a great conversation, and I want to share it with you. And I have to tell you, I'm marking out over this. I mean, this to me this is you know one of the greats. And uh, I tried to keep my composure, and I, I think I mostly did. I'll be back with Peter Kessler. This is the Turfgrass Zealot Project. I'm Dave Wilbur. The views, opinions, and general insanity expressed during this podcast are those of Dave Wilbur and his guests. Do not try this at home. Peter Kessler is here. And uh, Peter, hello. How are you? Well, I'm thrilled to be with you, Dave. You know, I've been a fan of yours for, for, for quite a while. I know that it's been a while since you've done a fresh show, and so I'm really super delighted to be with you today. And, you know, I, I see all your stuff on social media. I see how popular you are. I know people who know you, how important you are to the industry, how important you are to the people who take care of Arab golf courses who lovingly every single day of the year are out there, no matter what the weather. So I'm delighted to be with you. Wow. And, and, I'm, and I'm just such a huge fan of, of the audience that you bring that these are some of the most important people in the history of the game are the people who care for our golf courses every day of the year. And they're there at first light every single right. day. And I think they're 
as underappreciated as any of the people that exist in our industry. So I'm particularly thrilled to be with you. I think there's a, you're right. There's a lot of unsung heroism going on in our world, isn't there? <laughs> you know, so that's pretty cool that you recognize that, Peter. So let's let's just drop back for a second. So just imagine that you're a twenty-something-year-old listener of mine who probably um, may not exactly know who Peter Kessler is. Can you give me the elevator speech, the elevator introduction, so that I, so that I don't get it wrong? Well, I. Uh... I grew up in the New York, New Jersey area as a boy. I was born in 1952, so I'm 68 years old as we talk today. Uh -huh. My dad died early. I was 20, and I think I just learned two things from him. I learned to love sports, and he had been a Marine in World War II and got shot up at Iwo Jima. And so he was very, very straight, and he was very black and white in most things, which is not generally good because – being flexible is an important adult characteristic, but right. one thing that I totally bought from him was a very acute sense of right and wrong, doing the right thing for the right reasons, even when nobody's looking. And so uh, those were the two things I took away from my relationship with him. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. I had acted in high school plays and college plays and regional theater and community theater. And I got a job working in London for the most important banker in the world, Lord Rothschild, and then at Rothschild and Sons wow. in the late 19, 1970s. And I worked for Jacob for a couple of years and ran a public company that the Rothschild family owned in Europe. And while I was good at my job, I didn't like it very much. And so I started to bounce around Wall Street. And on my 35th birthday, I woke up. I said, okay, that's it. You're 35. You're good at what you do. You're great at marketing. You're, you're, you're great at helping people move deals. But this isn't really what you want to do. So I thought, okay, you know, people had always said stuff about my voice. So... Uh, I thought I'm going to try to break break into the entertainment industry. So what happened was I was 35 and I thought I'll give myself five years to try to break into the entertainment industry. And if I don't, then I'll just stay with what I'm doing. Okay. So by the time I was 39, four years later, I was the voice of HBO sports and I narrated award-winning documentaries for yeah. them for several years. And one of, one of the guys who was there, actually got the job to hire all of the people who were going to be on air for the golf channel. I see. And I narrated some doc documentaries for him. And so he told me what was going on and he said, would you like to host shows? And I said, well, of course. And so it was kind of a, a fun period because we were both in New York at the time. The golf channel was going to be in Orlando. He went down to Orlando, the guy from HBO. And then uh -huh. he called me and he said, look, he said, he said, I want to hire you. He said, but because you've never literally been on camera, he said, there's a reluctance. He said, so what we're going to do is we're going to test your knowledge of golf history. So I thought, well, I can't, can't lose that battle. So right. they started to call me at three in the morning. Now this is 1994, Dave, okay. and there's no computer. There's no Google. Sure, sure. You're not going to be looking stuff up at three in the morning. So they started asking me questions like they'd wake me up and say, who was the first famous female golfer? And 
And I said, Mary, Queen of Scots. And they said, no, babes, a Harriet. And I said, no. no. I said, because you asked you ask the first famous female, not the first famous professional female. Right. So they called me, called me back the next day, and they said, oh, you were right. So this went on for weeks. And then finally, the last question was, who was Sam Parks Jr.? Well, I knew more about Sam Parks Jr. than his mother did, because Sam Parks Jr., lived in the uh, area very close to Arnold in Pittsburgh, and he was played at Oakmont. Uh-huh. And in 1935, the, the U.S. Open was being held at Oakmont. So what Sam did was, every day for a couple of months before the Open Championship, he went out and he played nine holes. And the, one of the things he did was he started marking off the distances from trees, from bushes, uh-huh. to the front of the green, to the back right. of the green. And he was the first guy to do yardages. So Sam figured that Oakmont was so hard, and certainly it was the hardest course in America at that time, he felt it was so hard that 75s would win the U.S. Open. So sure enough, he went out and shot 301, which is 75 and right. a quarter strokes per round, and he won the U.S. Open. So then they called the next day, and they have said, you've got the job. So <laughs> If you knew uh, all that, then anything. you must know. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah. That couldn't have been any more. It couldn't have been any more obscure. So, so, so I got the job and I got down to Orlando, and then I found out that nobody there actually knew anything about golf. Nobody there knew about making television shows. Nobody knew anything about anything. All they had done is raise the money, and they had a building, and they found me. So I found out that for uh-huh. some reason, I knew how to do. Every single step. I knew how to do the research. I knew how to write the show. I knew how to memorize the show. I knew how to host the show, produce it, direct it, edit it. That's something that 12 people would normally do. I didn't have a staff. I had me sitting at home working it all out. So I was totally left alone for seven years to write as many different shows as I want. I did seven different kinds of shows over Uh time. I was completely left alone. Nobody ever bothered me. Nobody interfered. I was made the managing editor of the Golf Channel right away. And the reason that it was so successful among many is that from the time I was 10 or 12 years old, I started to read golf history. Well, that's what so I wanted time, That's what I wanted I, to get to. How did you get... We're, well, hang on. We're, so okay. By the time okay. I was 40, by the time I was 42 now, 30 years later, yeah. I had read golf history several days a week, several hours a day with a photographic memory so that when I finally got to the golf channel and I needed to pull out history, I could recall everything that I had ever read. And I knew at that time after studying for 30 years on my own, Uh that it was definitely the case that not only did I know more about golf generally and specifically than anybody else, I was able to chat about it in a way that I could tell people stories to enlighten them about that history. And that was one of the skills along with one of my gifts when I was at the golf channel. Right. Right. That conversational thing. I mean, that's, that's what I remember so much, Peter is, you know, I think, uh, you know, in those golf talk live segments, I would just sit there and be fascinated by the fact that you could have you know, that you could converse with these people that sometimes, you know, weren't that easy to converse with, I think. Right. And you knew, well, more, you knew more about them than they did sometimes. right? Well, that well, you actually, you're the first person who's ever said that. And that's exactly right. Because the most important thing 
was that I was trying to write a one-hour play, a new one each week. Remember the difference between going to see your, your – if you go see your favorite rock band and they come to your town – where they're going to play the same set that they played the night before somewhere else because it's a, it's a different audience, so you play right. the same song. Yeah. But if you do a television show like I did, you don't have a different audience. You have the same audience right. every week, which means you have to write a new play. You can't do your greatest hits every week. So every week, I was on the spot to virtually create a one-hour play. Now, how do you get the other guy to cooperate and make it be exactly an hour and get in everything you yeah. want? Well, the way that you, the way you do that is, in advance, you figure out, you find out, you claw, you dig, you research to make sure you know the answer to every single question you ever uh, ask. Uh, so if you know the answer, then you know how long the answer will take and then you can time out your show if you do it all the way through the hour in your head, knowing what you're going to get the other person, the other actor, the other golfer on the stage to say so that it comes out exactly as you had it in your head. So I found I was really good at doing that. Yeah. And I always knew what was coming. And I never asked a question very, very rarely that I didn't know the answer to. And so I found I had this gift of being able to get the guests particularly re particularly relaxed where they would give me the information. I'm friends with Sean Connery. We were certainly close 20 years ago. And uh -huh. Sean said to me one day, one day when we were playing golf, he said, he said, you know, people say that, you know, you make them feel like you're in the living room with you and the guest. And he said, and you, of course, that's true. He said, when I watch, and he said, and I tape every show of yours and I, mm -hmm. I'm not home, he said, he said, I feel like you're in, I'm in the room with you. He said, right. but I'll bet you don't know. He said, but I'll bet you don't know how you do that. And I said, actually, I don't. And then Sean said, that's a gift. Uh, he said, that's wow. a gift. And he said, and what, and he said, one of the things you're really great at is you let your gifts run free as really good performers do. And Sean saw me as an actor who also happened to be a golf savant who could play any role at any moment in any show to make it work most effectively. And he used to say to people around us, he'd say, I had Goldfinger and Pussy Galore. He said, and if we didn't like the way the scene went, he said, we shot it again. He said, look what Peter has to do. Right. It's a live show, right. live show, no mulligans, nobody as interesting as Goldfinger and Pussy. Try that on for an hour, boy. So he, he was a super big fan of mine, and he understood my acting wow. skills. And we talked a lot about acting. And yeah. uh, what he couldn't what he couldn't understand was how I could write the show and conceive the show, and then go on the other side of the camera and deliver the show right, because he was a, a deliverer. He, he he wasn't a writer, so yeah. he found that part particularly interesting. So. So it was gifts, it was skills, and then this accumulated golf knowledge over the prior 30 years. And starting when I was a boy in the early 60s, I used to go to golf tournaments in New Jersey and New York. So I saw Jack win in the early 60s, right. Arnold. I saw Billy Casper win. I, I saw, you know, everybody. And I saw everybody all the way through Tiger's greatest years where I went to every event and sat basically – 10 feet away from him on right. every single tee box inside the ropes for 12 years. Yeah. 
Yeah, crazy. So, I, and and let me see if I can impress you with a little bit of my preparation here. Um, you spent time on the Monterey Peninsula. You went to the Robert Louis Stevenson School, correct? Is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, yes, it is. See, so I did good. So, I mean, so here you are, a kid from New York, New Jersey, and now you're out on the West Coast and you're just dropped in golf mecca? I mean, how did that... I mean, our uh, school is right, you know, for people who don't know, it's, you know, it is right next to Spyglass Hill Golf Course and, uh, um, you know, an amazing, you know, amazing part of the world. I mean, you must have been in heaven there, right? Well, yes. I all, Now, sir, Robert Louis Stevenson would have been in 1967 and 1968. Okay. And that would have been 10th and 11th grade until I got thrown out because... A group of us took a school bus in 68. We drove up from Monterey to San Francisco to see the first Cream concert at the Fillmore. Uh-huh. And on the on the way back down, we got pulled over. They figured out we didn't have driver's licenses. We all got taken to jail in San Jose, and we all got kicked out of school the next day. But... <laughs> In the two, in the two, and there was a great, a great concert, by the way. And in the two years um, that I was there, yeah, my dorm was about seventy-five yards from the first tee at Spyglass, yeah. and yeah. we had open, we had open privileges, and nobody was there then, so right. you could just walk from your door. You went from your dorm to the first tee. There was no checking in. There was nothing. It was like it was your golf course. We just went to the first tee. That's amazing. Same thing at Pebble. Not not true at Cypress. Right. But but, but right. Pebble Beach and Spyglass just show up and play as much as you want. And I played a bunch of golf there, but I was already deeply ingrained in my system. But yes, having the opportunity yeah. to play Spyglass and Pebble as a sixteen and seventeen year old was a pretty cool addition to my golf experiences. Well, and just be in that environment and that you know, that whole you know, it's just a world that revolves around the game. Right, it's, it's you know most people that you come well, in contact it, with. Yes, have some... but it was so it was so quiet there though. Then Dave, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. in in those in those days, people didn't go to golf tournaments. Right, people just didn't go to golf tournaments. I give you an example. I lived in London from seventy eight to eighty when I worked for and I Rothschild and Sons, the Merchant Bank, and I went up in nineteen eighty to watch Tom Watson and everybody else play at Muirfield mm-hmm. and at the Open Championship. And I went with a friend and on the first tee, we said, okay, in two hours, I'll meet you at this place near the 10th tee. Okay. There were so few people there that you would run into your friend on every single hole, which could never happen today. Yeah, No kidding. Nobody, nobody went to golf tournaments. When Nicholas used to come to San Diego, when I was in school there to play in the tournament of champions at La Costa, where mm-hmm. I was the club champ one year, mm-hmm. I literally could walk with Jack on Tuesday and Wednesday during the practice round and nobody else would be watching at all from anywhere. And that's how I got to know Jack. And that's how I got to know wow. Gene Sarazen. I sat with Jack every day when he hit golf balls. And in 72, by complete happenstance, Sarazen showed up at La Costa. I was there that day. I was there all the time. Yeah. And Reggie Jackson was there, who wasn't super famous quite yet. Right. And so I played golf with Sarazen, who was 70. Reggie was probably in his late 20s. And I was 20 years old. So I played 18 holes with Sarazen <laughs> when I was 20. And I already knew everything about him. I didn't need to read anything when he showed up. I already knew it all. So 
when we went around the golf course, he was stunned that somebody was so well informed about his life. So we had dinner that night. We had dinner the next night. And so we became friends and we were friends until he died almost 30 years later at almost 100 years old. My goodness. Well, and one thing, Peter, that you don't, or that at least I don't remember you talking a lot about during your time in the Golf Channel is, I mean, you're, you just, and you just mentioned it. Hey, I was club champion at La Costa that year. I mean, you're a, you're a, a keen striker of the ball, right? I mean, you're a great player. You don't, you probably well, don't say that about yourself. Was, but, well, but, I was you a know. good club player. Yes, I, well, I mean, I started to play golf as a kid. Yeah. Um, the second shot that, the second shot I ever saw hit was actually a hole in one by a, by my uncle Daniel. I, I remember I was eight or nine years old, and my mom used to take me to the pool and my younger sister, and we belonged to a very inexpensive club nearby the house, and uh-huh. my dad and his brother would play every Saturday and Sunday morning. So one day when I was eight or nine, I wandered up to what turned out to be the 10th tee. I didn't know what that even meant. And there comes my dad and his brother and two other guys. So my dad hits first, what I learned to be a howling slice, and then my uncle Daniel hits second, knocks it into the hole with, I don't know, a five or six iron kind of a thing. Uh-huh. And I thought, that's him. And then right after that, Bob Tosky, who had just quit the tour a few years earlier as a young man, came and did a clinic okay. with trick shot artist Paul Hahn at the course. And if I had been any closer to the two of them, I would have gotten hit by the club face in their backswing. So right. I fell in love with, with the game early. I And my parents used to go up for the barbecues on the holidays of the summer. I used to go right down to the bag room, grab some clubs out of a guy's bag, grab a couple of balls, and I would just play yeah. up to the first green, back to the first tee, up to the first green, but until it got darker, my parents came to get me to go home. So... I loved playing at the end of the day very early. I loved playing alone very sure, early. Sure. I appreciate I appreciated that the golf course was a beautiful place to be apart from the playing of the game. And so then when I was handed the first book that I ever read, which was Down the Fairway by Bobby Jones, uh-huh. then I became hooked I became hooked on the history. So yeah. very early on I liked a number of of things about golf and I was a decent player when I was when I was in my 20s I was a low handicapper when I won the club championship at La Costa in 76 I was yeah, I don't know I was probably a two or something and uh-huh. you know and I could shoot 75 but I could shoot 75 from the back tees at La Costa to win and I also broke 70 a number of times from the back tees at La Costa to win and you're hitting six and eight one irons around, literally sure. six and eight one irons sure. every single round to shoot those numbers. So yeah. I was a good club player. I played in a lot of amateur events, did not have a good track record. Uh-huh. I played in a number of the Dunhill Links tournaments over in Scotland um, and played some of the best golf of my life. I uh, had it in the 70s all four days at the old course twice, Kings Barnes and Carnoustie. And uh, Thomas yeah. LeBay that year was my, my partner. That was 02, the year he lost the playoff to Ernie Elson oh, okay. Open. Yeah. So LeBay, LeBay missed the 54-hole cut, low 55 pros and ties. But there were 168 two-man teams of which we were one. Uh-huh. The low 20, The low 20 teams after 54 holes got to play on Sunday along with the pros who had made the cut individually, like the pro-am at Pebble. Sure. 
So he, he missed the cut, but we made the cut. So he was the only pro who got to play on Sunday at the old course who hadn't made the cut himself. And again, I played really good for him, and I birdied 15, 16, and 18 in the final round, and uh, and won, and he won $25,000, of which he was going to win zero if I hadn't played well. So I was able to perform pretty well when I was a decent player. I was never a great player. I'm certainly not anything of the kind now. I don't play very much, but I love to chip, and I love to pitch, especially because Sebi taught me how to pitch. I spent a lot of time with him, and Sam Sneed was the first one who taught me how to pitch in 1974 when it, at the L.A. Open, where my family lived. And uh-huh. Sam was 62. He, he, he played in the last group with Dave Stockton on Sunday and took Dave Stockton all the way to 18. Yeah. Now, that Monday night at the L.A. Open, I went down to the range. I was the only person there. There were 20 guys hitting balls and one spectator, me. So I sat wow. behind Sam. I sat behind Sam Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and su- and su- Saturday was the last night. I had dinner with him a couple of nights. We became great friends. And and he said to me, what kind of a player are you? And I said, I, I break 80. And he said, okay, if you want to be good, he said, then you take six months or a year and you just learn how to hit 50-yard pitches. Really? And he said, huh. He said, 10 or, 10 or 12 things will happen. Among them, if you're a good pitcher from 50 yards and in, you're going to be 20 feet and in. You're not going to have 60 feet, so you're going to two-putt a lot, and you're going to make a few of them because you'll hit a few inside 10 feet. Sure. So it reduces three putts. And if you can also learn how to hit a 50-yard pitch, well, that's just a mini version of the full swing. So if you have a six iron in your hand, you still feel like you're making the 50-yard sand wedge pitch, uh, but the swing's going to be a little longer, and the swing's going to be a little faster. And so when Sam told me about that and explained to me that because it's 50 yards, it's only a half swing, and because it's 50 yards, it's a slower swing, so because it's slower and more brief without being right. quick at any point during the brevity of the motion, he said you can feel what you're supposed to do. You can feel your mistakes. You can self-teach yourself from 50 yards. Wow. He said you learn to hit the 50-yarder, then, you then you've ingrained a new swing. Your three pots go down because when you're inside of 50 yards, not only are you going to not miss greens, but you're going to have a lot of one putts because you're going to get good at putting the ball inside of 20 feet almost every time. Right, right. I was going to say, you're setting yourself up for, you know, for easy putting. That makes sense. Makes that, perfect sense. Yes, and without, hitting, and without hitting a putt the whole time, just hitting the 50-yard right, pitch. just hitting the 50-yard pitch. Wow, that's crazy. Well, go, and going back to your to the, to the 2002 story, I mean, that was the first year that Kingsborns was uh, – was in the Dunhill, right? So you were part of that whole thing, which was kind of historic, huh? Yes, so I think I think uh, I think it opened up in uh, Kings Barnes in two thousand. In two thousand, and the and two thousand two was the first year that they that well, they had the Dunhill there. Yeah. Well, two thousand two thousand one was actually the first Dunhill. Oh, okay, okay. And they held it. They held it despite Dave, the fact that nine eleven had just occurred. Right. And it had just that. just occurred the month the month before, but everybody still showed up at the tournament. Sure. And so two thousand and one, Kings it was the rotation was Kings Barnes, Carnoustie, and the old course, 
and that remains today to continue to be the case. Yeah. And on the Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, the practice rounds, everybody figured out right away that they could just play twice a day at the old course, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And you didn't go to Kings Barnes. You didn't go to Carnoustie. Right. And then later you learned, yeah, let's put Kings Barnes in the rota for the practice rounds. But I played a lot of six-round uh, uh, rounds over three days at the old course for several years during the Dunhill Lakes. And played some of that best golf at the old course. And the weather the few years, particularly in early years, was super beautiful, like right. I 70 remember. degrees and stuff. So yeah, it was, was a one-club wind. You know, one-club wind and 68 degrees at the old course is exactly what you want. And we had it every single day. There was a wind to deal with every day, and I loved that. Yeah. And, yes, the Kings, Kings Barnes was fantastic. I Played one of my, you know, for the time I played, I shot 75 there, so 75 the old course, shot 79 at Carnoustie, which was actually the best round, and then on Sunday at the old course, I birdied three of the last four holes, That's shoot amazing. 75 again for Levey and win him the money, so it was great. That's amazing. I love that. Well, I'm I'm such a fan of all that, and I worked on Kings Barnes, Peter. So, you know, it's a ah. it's I, uh, there's a lot of my heart in that place, and uh, Walter Woods and I um, together. You know, oh wow! Did the, did, I didn't know you. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So I was actually at the Dunhill for both of those years. I was trying to figure out if it was 2001, 2002. So I know the weather. I know yeah. exactly what was going on. <laughs> you know, I was there. So that's pretty cool. So okay. So let me let me ask. Um, uh, I just want. I had some random questions here that I wanted to fire at you and just see. Sure. Because uh, I'm just so curious about about you and how you think about things. So. Um, let's talk about Seve for a second, because it seemed like to me that you were one of the few people in the world that really understood Seve. <laughs> you know, maybe you and Jaime Patino. <laughs> like, like, how did you get into that guy's head? So, I mean, I, I realized prep and all that sort of stuff, but there was more to it that to your relationship with Seve than that, right? Yeah, I, I've always had this curious uh, uh, skill or gift in that, Anybody who's famous always seemed to me to, I never was intimidated. I was never impressed. I never was at a loss for words. I could treat the most famous person in the world just like you and I treat each other, just sure. like normal people. Sure, that is so a real So what guess. happened was when famous people know that you're comfortable yourself when you're with them, then they get more comfortable. So okay. I had that happen with virtually everybody that I interviewed. I instantly made them comfortable. And I was also capable of hypnotizing people to a certain extent, which I did <laughs> in, a, in a lot of cases without them really knowing, without them really knowing it was the case, but being, being serious. So yeah, in I 99, I, the first time I interviewed Sebi, I had watched him play for years, but the first time I interviewed him was at 99 at the World Golf Hall of Fame. Was he when he was inducted? He was 41 years old. So we did a we only did a 30 minute show because I had to have two guests that night because a few people were inducted. So we got along really well during our segment, and it was all on the up and up. And we just looked at his greatest shots, and he was super relaxed. And then we kind of stayed in touch. And then mm-hmm. in 2004. I went to Spain and lived at his house for three days and did an interview with him for print for golf magazine, which went really well. And so okay. when, when we got there, it was just, I instantly just kind of read him in some way. 
and figured out which version of me would be the best one to deal with him. Okay. And so I just, you know, acted accordingly. And so we, you know, we had all of our meals together. He started to teach me how to chip. He taught me how to mm -hmm. pitch. He, I got close to his wife, Carmen. I played with his three kids. And so I see. You know, he, got, he was yeah. very relaxed in my company and he would, and we used to have chipping contests and, you know, if I got away with one, he was not able to be fooled. He'd give me the look and say, you really think you can fool me with that? <laughs> and uh, he said, I'm the great Sebi. He said, you think you can fool me with a chip shot? So That's when funny. in 04, after I had gone to Spain for three days, I said to him, look, you're going to come to Orlando for the father-son. And he said, I'm assuming you don't know a lot of people in town. He said, I said, so bring Carmen and the kids for dinner whenever you want. Yeah. So I didn't really think I'd hear from them, and I heard from them, and they did come over, and they came over a few times. And one night, Sebi and I went down into my yard where there's two AstroTurf mats about 35 yards apart, and you can hit pitches from the one mat to the other, which okay. has a hole and a flag stick, and sure. it's super small. And so the night, the first night he came here, we went. the girls were making dinner, and we went down, and he picked up one of my wedges and a pile of balls and started to hit shots from 35 yards. And he never duplicated the same shot. Wow. He hit one straight up straight up in the air, came straight down. He hit a slice. He hit a hook. He hit a draw. He hit a fade. He hit one shot that was like a foot off the ground, and it hits this hard piece of astroturf and squirmed and spun. I had never been able to do that. Wow. And I, I couldn't believe it. And then he finally leaves one maybe four feet from the hole. The other ones were all stony. Leaves one four feet from the hole from 35 yards and got upset. Got mad. And he starts looking at, yeah. the, looks at the wedge, looks at the ground. He looks at me. So, and then we came in and he said, <laughs> where is the bedroom? And I said, over here. He said, I'd like to take a nap. So I walked him into my bedroom. He laid down on the bed. I took one of my grandmother's Afghans. I pulled it over him. Oh my and we God. went and got him for 20 minutes later, I went and got him for dinner. Oh. And when he hung out, when we hung out, we just hung out. I didn't pepper him with questions right. or right. anything like that. Yeah. Just hanging out and talking about whatever. So I was able to make him relax. I was able to make Arnold relax from the very first day that we were together. Right. And, uh, and, and, and I remember, you know, as the first day when Arnold unfolded a few months before the Golf Channel formed, I went to see him in Latrobe, and we played golf, and we hung out, and we ate dinner, and he knew, figured out how much I knew about golf. And, you know, and he said to me one night, just the two of us in Latrobe, he said, he said, you know, I understand live golf on TV, he said, but I don't understand how you're going to make shows that don't involve live golf that are interesting. Now uh, I had been uh, hired to been hired two months before, so I had sixty days to think about how do you make a golf show without golf? And by then I had already figured it out in my head sure. and then later implement implemented it and it worked. So in October of ninety four, when we were together in the trove before we went on the air in January of ninety five in Orlando, I said to him, Here's how I think it can be done. I said, here's how I think you can help me. Here's how I think I can help you. And so, you know, by the time we finished our first three, three days together, not only were we friends, but he was super duper impressed in the possibilities 
all of which we managed to eventually carry out exactly yeah. as I described it to him in October of 94. Right. Perfect. Wow, that's crazy. I love that. All right, let me ask you, let me go down my list here. Um, did, sure. Did you ever get some time to, I think, I what I did is I called a few of my, my favorite superintendents, you know, around the country prepping for this. I'm like, and I basically sure. just said, what would you, what would you ask Peter Kessler if you were sitting in front of him? And I got some great answers. And one of them, um, uh, that, uh, several of the guys said was, um, what, uh, did you get to hang out with any golf course superintendents? Um, did you, like when you were at tournaments and stuff, did you ever, you know, go out with the guys? Did you ever avail yourself of that world a little bit, Peter? Or what, you know, tell me what you know about you know, our world of growing grass and stuff. I would say that my indoctrination into what makes a golf course a living, breathing thing Mm -hmm. was really when I moved to New York in 1980 after I lived in London and worked for NM Rothschild and Sons for a couple of years. And then we moved to Westchester County, which you know, mm-hmm. is arguably as good a place for great golf as there is anywhere yeah. in the world. And there was a guy who was at Fairview, Bob Alonzi. Oh, yeah. He was sure. just a great super. So I was really interested in what happens at five in the morning. Mm-hmm. So uh, there were many, many, many days that I got up at first light and went over the course to watch them prepare the golf course and to see how many decisions they had to make every day about things that they couldn't control, like the weather. Yeah, yeah. You know, that every single day presented you almost like the golf course was a blank canvas every day, that it was, it was okay, what do we do today to maximize the enjoyment factor for the people who will play mm-hmm. the course, mm-hmm. while at the same time, and more importantly, making sure that we're taking care of the course in such a way that we never take it to the edge. We never take it right. to an extreme. There's all, and, and that there, and all kinds of things are going to impact that process. So I was really interested in what Bob did. And then what happened was Bob got the job to be the super at Wingfoot. At Wingfoot. That's so right. Now, yep. So now he's in charge of Wingfoot, the big course, and the east course. And, mm-hmm. and those days I knew a lot of people at Wingfoot. They knew me, and I lived like 10 minutes away. Sure. So I used to go watch Bob handle Wingfoot, and I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was the first time I saw anybody with a pair of scissors. I remember it so well. We were, stand- <laughs> we were, on-, we were-, we were on the first tee at Wingfoot West. And there, of course, is the plate with the yardage marker on it. Mm-hmm. And you could, t- and all, it had already there had already been a lawnmower around it, but there were little there were little grass hairs, if you will, sticking out. Sure. And Bob gets down on his hands and knees on the first tee of thirty six holes, and uh, goes ahead with a pair of scissors and starts trimming. Yeah. The. Uh, it starts trimming the little pieces of grass that were sticking out, and I couldn't believe the detail yeah. that they went into in order to make this thing perfect. It was almost like being in the barber shop, and he said, a little clip here and a little clip here. And you're talking <laughs> about 120 
125 acres of grass. Yeah. I mean, you know, and also there, there are issues of how do you maintain the little bits of what appear to be forest land, if you will, right. where there aren't trees surrounding the golf course. How does that impact you? How does the wind moving through those trees impact you? How does cutting down some of those trees impact with the way that the air blows to the course in a way air that lets it be yeah. more efficient and more of a bother to players? So I just loved it. I mean, and I remember, too, the first time that I went to the Masters tournament and and I saw, you know, how they line up the, the 10 mowers and the 10 guys driving them. Sure. And... Uh, and, and how they would come over the hill, you know, in total unison. And uh, and so I've always, uh, almost in the very beginning, been extremely appreciative of how much work goes in to letting the 95 shooter have a good day, enjoy the course, without commenting on the conditions, without nodding to the superintendent, without nodding to his staff. It's like... It's almost like everybody just took it for granted, right. but I knew there was, I knew there was something behind it. So I've been a you know really big fan. I, uh, Stuart Leventhal was the uh, you know for twenty oh thirty years was the super at Interlochen Country Club in Winter Park, in Florida. Winter Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yep. And one year at the annual meeting, I uh, I was uh, the one who was who gave Bob, uh, who gave us Stuart his award for super of the year, which was, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, your, your people right across country used to invite me to the annual meetings and I used to speak. And so yep, yep. I knew they were fans of mine and they knew I was fans of theirs. And the thing is, Dave, that not that many golfers appreciate or even begin to understand what it takes for people on your side of the business all of the business of strains and chemicals and, 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 and what's the best way to care for things and what should we do now? And is sure. there a better strain? And, and, and there's more different strains on the tea and different strains on the, on the green and different strains in the rough and the fairway. And how do you keep them from mingling together when you don't want them to mingle together? So yeah. I always thought that was a fascinating puzzle, which every single day has different pieces to fit because the weather changed. Yeah, that's really true. That's really, gosh, Peter, you're, you just made thousands of fans. You know that? At least I hope thousands of people will listen to this because I think what you just said is what, every, what all of us want pe people to understand and know, you know, that it is a living, breathing thing. It's a daily puzzle. You know, it's all that stuff, right? So bravo for you. I mean, thank you. What a great story. You know, that Bob Alonzi story is, is just, that's an amazing story. And I, and I know Bob and I know the attention to detail. So I, I get what you're talking about, you know, for sure. Well, the thing is, you know, part of the thing is, though, that the part of the reason, Dave, is that fewer people appreciate you folks than, than, than do appreciate you is because you arrive before the golfers do. Right. And you're basically gone by the first tee-off time. Well, that's, so, unless well, you're that's the result, point. They're not, they're not supposed to see us or at least see much of us, you know, see, well, you know, that's right. right. It's, yeah. You know, it's like, it's, it's like, it's like, it's like when you go to a Broadway play and the, 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 the scenes are complicated and things get moved around and things slide. 
you know, people who are preparing the stage for the performance are all gone by the time the star walks out onto the stage. Yeah, absolutely. And that's yeah. that's the way that's the way golf courses work. By the time the first player shows up, the stage is set. Everything is perfect. The lights are right. The sound is right. The seats are right. So what? then they disappear. So people come to the theater and you take for granted that these incredible things happen. It doesn't just fall out of the sky. You're talking about a craftsman with an incredible array of skills. It's exactly the same thing in your business. An incredibly gifted group of people with an astonishing array of skills being carried off, carried out at almost 16,000 golf courses in our country. I love that you understand that, Peter. Again, so many, so many people are going to be happy about hearing that. All right, let's move on. Let's, uh, let's tackle, um, a pretty big issue right now. I mean, I, I, th I think I would be uh, skewered if I didn't talk to you about the, this, all of this talk about the club and the ball and, and, uh, I know a lot of people would love to hear your, I, I certainly would love to hear your take on it. And, um, you know, I, I, I have my opinions. I'm going to hang on to them uh, for a little bit. But I sure would love to hear what you're thinking about all of this recent conversation. Well, I, I, think, I think the situation that would be in the best interest of golf is you've got, you know, 99.99% of your players who play golf are 90 shooters, right? Yeah. And most people who play golf don't don't even break a hundred. So all of the gains in the ease of which you can use today's equipment for the recreational player is terrific. Because I know in my own case now, here I am, you know, much decades past when I played my best golf. But you know, with the, with the equipment they have today, I I can still hit the drive far enough that I can play an array of clubs into the greens and that could range yeah. from yeah. three wood all the way down to a short iron. So at the recreational level, it's really the same as pro golf in this sense from 50, 30 years ago. Don't look at 1986 when Jack won the masters. He had to hit four iron into 15, five iron into 16. They're hitting real clubs. They're using all of the clubs in the bag. Recreational players still do. Mm -hmm. I use all 14 clubs in almost every round I play, and that's true for almost every recreational player. So the recreational game is fine. Manufacturers can continue to let us hit the ball farther. We need the distance. Right. They can make a driver makes it hit us straighter. We need it. But at the professional level, it's not working anymore because you have a situation that's no different than if the home runs at Yankee Stadium were 800 feet right, instead right. of a big one being 430 feet. Yeah, the baseball so the analogy is 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 the most common one that I hear. Right? You know, what if? Well, it's the, it's the best one because right. it lets you conclude that in pro golf the equipment doesn't fit the field, where in baseball it does. Yeah. You know. They've moved fences in. They've tweaked the ball. Think about tennis. People don't know. Every week, it's a different tennis ball. People don't realize 25 years ago when the whole game became serve and no volley, right. they slowed the ball down. But yeah, they didn't yeah. tell anybody. If you go to the U.S. Open tennis tournament, the balls for the men are heavier and fuzzier than the balls for the women, and they only use those balls that week on that surface. Right. So... Yeah. And you don't, and they don't even say it anything on television. If 
you listen, nobody mentions the equipment because there's nothing to talk about because they tweak it quietly behind the scenes. So in my view, the situation is you have 200 players, the guys who play the PGA Tour, that's all we're talking about. No yeah. other tours, nothing else, no amateur golf, no nothing, right. no qualifying, no women. 200 guys who play the tour and play the majors. My advice, if I was the czar of golf, which I believe I am secretly, <laughs> you're, if you're in charge, then what you want to do to start the movement among that group is you go back to an older mold, mold of a Pro V1. The first one came out in 2000. Mm-hmm. The ball that's available now 20 years later does go for those guys, not for us, just right. for those guys. Because a recreational player can't hit the 2000 Pro V1 any worse or better than the 2020 Pro V1. Can't compress the but, ball the same way. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, I that's totally right. get so it. For yeah. us, right, for, so for recreational players to use that golf ball makes no sense. But But at those swing speeds and with that equipment, driving, which used to be the hardest part of the game for a professional is now the easiest part of the game for a professional. When Jack Nicklaus was winning these tournaments, 20% of the game was power. Now it's 80%. So what do you do? You don't want the manufacturers to spend money to rethink anything, nor do they have to because they just have to go back to an older mold. They didn't throw them away. The mold from 2000 exists. The mold from the year before when they were still testing the ball and continued sure. to tweak it, that could be a good one. So yeah. in one sentence, in one sentence, what I would do is I'd pick an older mold of the golf ball, and I would also reduce the head size of drivers from 460 to 350. Okay. Now, the combined smaller driver phase with a ball that flies a little shorter, only for them, but it wouldn't for us, could knock off about 10% of the driving distance. Yeah. And I would call that a great place to start. Now, here's the thing that people seem to be confused about. People are saying, oh, well, the manufacturers will make less money. No, they no. make more money. Yeah, I never have why? understood why people say that. Yeah. Keep right, going, because man. the recreational player, because right, I'm going to still buy the same stuff I can buy that will help my game, but I've got friends who are stupid, and my stupid friends are going to buy the pro ball. They're going to buy the 350cc driver and say, I play with the pros play. So the manufacturers will actually sell more. And remember, the 200 guys don't pay for their equipment anyway. They don't pay for clubs and balls. They get them for free. We're the ones who pay for them. So they'll continue to sell stuff to us. They can continue to evolve the science and the stuff for us. And you roll it back 10% with a little smaller driver and an older ball, and you then you look and you see and you decide what that means now. Do we need more tweaks? Should we do something else? It's an ongoing process. Look at Augusta National. The course opened in 1931. There's never been a year where they don't make changes. Sure. And they don't even tell you what they are. You just see them when you show up. Sure. So things could be tweaked quietly without a fuss, but you need the 10% rollback only for those guys and it's a driver ball combo to start, and it's not a big thing, and you don't have to spend any money to do it. Because you got to work on the club and the ball at the same time. So, so Peter, I why do that. you think guys like Phil Mickelson are saying, no, it's not the it's not the equipment. We're just in better shape. Everybody goes to the gym now. 
I mean, that just seems brain damage to me that that he would. Yeah, it's, it's it's yeah. Well, actually, you're being kind because <laughs> Phil Mickelson is going to be going to be fifty in June, right? Yeah. So when Phil was twenty nine, he hit the ball fifty five yards shorter yeah. than he does at forty nine. Fifty five yards. Yeah. Now remember too, remember too that. Ten years ago, Phil Mickelson went on record talking about how the equipment has made him longer, right. and now right. he's saying that's not really the issue. So, yeah. you know, Phil, it, Phil cannot be trusted right. in there's, that way. There's no credibility I, I, there. Yeah. Phil's a friend of mine. I love Phil. I've spent a lot of time with Phil. Yeah. But he's a whack job. He's a whack <laughs> job, and he doesn't have any problem making up little things what I would call little white lies. There's no question that at 55 yards longer at 49 than 29, it's not the, it's not the athlete. It's, you know, what are you talking about? Siwoo Kim, JT, Jordan Spieth. Uh, Those guys aren't athletes. How about, how about Sung JM? The guy's 50 pounds overweight. So it's (laughs) not that it's not that it's yes. If you're going to go to the athleticism, are more golfers more efficiently working out? Yes. But do you think Sam Snead hadn't figured out how to get into shape or Ben Hogan or oh, Arnold? Man, look, Arnold look, looked like, yeah, look at Arnold Hogan. Arnold like a rock. Hogan. Arnold wanted to – Arnold, I was in his house one day many years ago. He said, let's wrestle. I said, are you kidding? And like one second later, I'm pinned. I mean, yeah, yeah. Arnold, Arnold's hands, Arnold's fingers were twice as long and twice as wide as anybody else's. So were Byron Nelson's. Yeah. They were humongous. Yeah. And the, and Tommy Bolt, who I played with until he died in his 90s, Tommy Bolt still wore weights on his ankles, and he did special things. And Sam Sneed swam, and Sam ran. Sure. Gary Player was a workout nut right in the very beginning. Even Bobby Jones got ready for the 1930 Grand Slam by working out all winter by playing a form of badminton on an empty Atlanta stage. And it was a kind of a combination of tennis and badminton invented by silent film star Douglas Fairbanks, who was a huge Bobby Jones fan and used to go wherever Jones went. He was a groupie. He went wherever Jones went. Douglas Fairbanks went to watch him win his golf. So, um, Oh yeah, so well, players, tell me that Hogan have didn't have right. a six pack. Tell me that Ben Hogan didn't have a six pack. That guy was just ripped. Yeah, those guys, right? You know, yeah. this is the thing that it, it's there's a broader way to look at this, which is people who are really, 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 really successful. Kobe Bryant, a great recent example. All he ever talked about was you have to do the work. Right. They said to Jerry Seinfeld, if you had. Uh, if you could lecture to hundreds of students who want to be comedians, what would your lecture be? And he would say, I would get a big board and I would write on it, get to work. work. And he, said, <laughs> would say, and he yeah. said, that's it. There isn't anything else. It's all about the preparation. I took extraordinary amounts of time to get ready for my shows. You don't think these guys who were trying to play the best cop anybody ever played didn't figure out that swimming and running sure. and lifting and swing weight, they figured it out. Yeah. They figured it out. Like every great person at everything ever has figured out it's about the work. And then if you're, if you're lucky enough to have inspiration and talent and gifts, 
then the work is the thing that makes those come alive. They don't just fall out of the right. sky. Absolutely. That there has to be a, there's genetics and talent involved as well, right? So yeah, and absolutely. Talent without hard work, talent without hard work is the most common thing in the world. Right. Absolutely. True story. Okay. Uh, looking at my list here, we're getting close. Um, who didn't you get to interview that you wanted to, that you would have wanted to? I mean, obviously, there well, were the guys that were, uh, uh, that, that were already dead when you got started. I mean, you know. Right. You it's, can... it's a very short list, really. I mean, I never did interview Mickey Wright. Okay. Um, I, I talked to Mickey many times. I met Mickey. She came to Orlando once. I met her yeah. for coffee. And, and it's one of those things where I had a list of 500 people I wanted to interview when we started the Golf Channel. We got to we got to. 490 of them, you know, so is that right? Really? You know, we, we, no uh, kidding. Well, well, I actually ended up doing, actually ended up having 3000 guests, but 500 were on my original wish list for the sit down talk show. And Mickey was one of the very, very few who got away partially because I was always so busy getting ready for the next show that sometimes I didn't step back and go, now, who haven't we gotten right. to? Because we just had such a list. So Mickey would have been the big regret. And, of course, the fellows who were gone, you know, Hogan was dying and sure. Jones was gone and Hagen was gone. But I got everybody else. Yeah, you did. Gene Sarazen, Gene Sarazen born in 1902. Uh, Sneed and Nelson, born in 1912. Yeah. And Tommy Bolt, born in 1916. So... Yep. I pretty much got every great player and teacher except for very, very few of the 20th century. Yeah. Wow. Such a thing, man. Such a thing. Okay, along those same along those lines, Peter, for me, and I know you've been posting some stuff on, on your on your Twitter account. And by the way, if you don't follow follow Peter uh on Twitter, you're making a huge mistake because his stuff is so good. But you've been posting a bunch of Mo Norman stuff lately. And um I don't know that I might've gotten my introduction to Mo Norman through you in the golf channel. And I, I, that I'm mesmerized by that guy. Absolutely mesmerized by him. And somehow you figured out a way to translate Mo, you know, and translate Mo speak. I mean, what, how many of those segments did you shoot with him? Um, where he's just pounding balls, you know? Well, we, we got together, this was 2001, and Craig Shankland, who was the pro with us, was actually the pro at the same golf course that Alonzi was the super at in Connecticut okay. in 1980, 81, and 82. So yeah. Mo and Craig Shankland became great friends. So Craig set it up, and uh, and I met Mo. And uh, I, I call my sort of secret homework in the first three minutes of meeting mm -hmm. him to figure out which which side of me would right. best connect with him. So we ended up doing uh, two hours together, and we turned it into two one-hour shows. And right. uh, I put up pretty much everything that, that we did together. But Mo was sure that I had hypnotized him because – when when we <laughs> when we finished and we sat down and had lunch, kept looking over at me like with a sideways glance, like what happened here? Because I let him out of the trance when we had lunch, and so he he felt himself it uh, changed uh, back to his real self, and and then he said to me, "Did you hypnotize me?" And I said, "Well, 
sort of. So, and then Greg, who I had known for 20 years, started looking at me because he had never seen Mo like that. And he's going, what, what just happened here? So I knew it had gone particularly well, and there wasn't a minute that I would have changed. I think the important thing about Bo to recognize is, like a lot of great players with an unusual swing, it was a freak in the nicest sense of the word, you know, like Lee Trevino or sure, anybody sure. or Tiger, just yeah. that, you know, gifts beyond our imagination. And everything that Mo did in his setup and swing, you definitely wouldn't want to copy for yourself because you couldn't do it. I mean, he reached, no, I tried. He, right, he reached, reached two feet for the golf ball instead of four or five inches. He started the club two feet behind the ball. He only took his hands up, uh, hands up to halfway up, and yet the shaft got to 11 o'clock. And then, you know, it was a super stable lower body, and it was a phony yeah. finish. He actually went around and then took the club and yeah. made it appear more up and down. But if a recreational player tried to finish that vertical, he would have, he would slice everything or hit bad shots, low shots to the right. You know, that was a phony finish, but it was Bo's phony finish, and the ball was already gone. But I think the thing yeah, that was most, yeah. most impressive about his ball striking was he took out a five-degree driver, and he said, okay, now I'm going to hit a bunch of balls. Each one will go 20 feet higher than the next until I get to 120 feet. So he went, so you uh -huh. can see it. He went 20 feet high, yeah. 40, 60, 80, 100, 120 with a five degree driver. It was yeah. unbelievable. So, yes, it was one of the most fascinating experiences of my life. And, you, you know, you just have to make sure that you don't turn into a spectator and that you continue to, you know, to manage the affairs. But right. you're, it was, you're it, trying to commentate the thing, and, and it's like, and it's kind of jaw dropping. I bet. Well, because yeah. you're also because yeah, you're mesmerized by what you're seeing, um, but you yeah. just have to you have to dismiss that and sublimate it to the work that you need to do. So, yeah, we we hit it off really well, and it was one of the really great great experiences for me ever. And I knew that it was for Mo, and I knew that he talked about it until he died, and he wondered what happened that morning. And uh, it was it was just one of the most wonderful experiences I've ever had out of thousands that I've had in the world of golf. Well, thank you for posting that stuff, <clears throat> for keeping that alive, and um, you know, like I say, I I tried to <laughs> to to develop a Mo Norman swing, and it just wrecked my game. So I quit that. But I, you know, I was just so inspired by the guy because he was different, and I and I like being different, you know. So it's like, yeah, I don't, I want to be different, <laughs> and I think you really brought that out. So hats off to that, right? All right, last question. Yes, sir. Last question, and this is this is the one that when I when I pulled my my group, this uh -oh. is the one that everybody everybody had it on their list. Really? Which was, what do you think the future of golf is? Is is golf is golf destined to be? And let me qualify that. You know, is golf destined to be the you know the go to the driving range you know kind of deal, top golf, or is you know what? We're all concerned, I think, and and some of us. I mean, you know, I don't know that I have that many years left in the in the golf business or in the world, but there's a lot of twenty somethings that are listening, and they're they're hanging their hat and their career and their family and all that sort of stuff on our on our business. You know, what do you think, Peter? What's your what's your crystal ball for golf? It's actually more optimistic than most because before Tiger came on the scene. Golf was always a niche sport, and it's still a niche sport today. 
And right. then, and what right. happened was, it wasn't for everybody, but the people who really love to play golf really love to play golf. I mean, right now we're in a situation where 70 million people play around the world at least a few times a year. 17 million people are what you would characterize as avid golfers. Okay, so that's really right. a market. People who, who people who play on a regular basis or belong to clubs or figure out a way to get to a golf course at least once a week. That's that 17 million number. Now, when Tiger came on the scene and things went crazy because people expected there to be a huge influx of new players, well, that never happened. So what did happen instead yeah. was golf courses got built at such an astonishing rate that for a 12-year period beginning in the 90s, a new golf course opened up in this country every single day of the year. And as you well know right now, there's a golf course closing every closing other every day. day of the year. Yeah, yeah. So what I believe is going to happen is that golf will continue to be successful at the level that's important to you, your colleagues, your listeners, and to me, which is that the, the game won't go away. The appeal sure. of being at a golf course won't go away. Taking a five-year out to the golf five-year-old out to the golf course and letting him throw rocks in the pond is not going to go away. It's passed on through families. It's passed on through friends. It's not going to be passed on anymore from watching golf on TV. There aren't enough interesting players, and the game is one-dimensional because they only use five of the 14 clubs. So if you set aside the importance to you of watching pro golf except for the Open and the Masters and the key events, mm -hmm. then that's the way it's going to be going forward where – Pro golf is less of an influence on us because they no longer play a game with which any recreational players can identify, but yet the right. game that they're playing isn't interesting to watch because Arnold, for example, from 1955 through 1975, told me that he averaged, averaged in the par fours, not majors, between three and four iron. Average, second shot. Then mm -hmm. I said to him, what did you mm -hmm. average at major championships in the par fours over those 20 years? And he said, three iron or more. And if you think about it, you know, three iron is nearly the middle club of the bag, which is really the five iron. That's the middle club. And, and what's yeah. missing from the pro game today is you never see a pro hit a five iron from an awkward angle over the wrong green side bunker that slopes away with wind to deal with. That shot right. doesn't exist for them, but it, it, sure, doesn't doesn't, it yeah. sure exists for me. It sure exists yeah. for you. And without the five-iron recovery from the awkward angle, you wouldn't have had Walter Hagen or Ronald Palmer or Phil Mickelson or Semi Ballesteros or Tiger Woods. That is gone. It was one of the most thrilling parts of the game. But it's not gone for everybody else who plays golf who isn't on tour. So we'll continue to see some golf course closures. Until it get until the numbers start to work again, where it isn't overbuilt, and we're going to see more creative use of the way in which people can play golf without necessarily forking out money to be a member of a private individual club. That this business where you can become a member, where you can play at a group of clubs, is going to catch on. Resorts like Bay right. and Dunes and Pinehurst and Streamsong, those are going to continue to flourish. And one of the interesting right. things about Band and Dunes that people don't recognize is those courses were all built 
without any consideration for what the professional might do. They were built. No, for, of course They were not. built yeah, yeah. for got the recreational players. That's Mike Kaiser's secret. He's ignoring the pros. We're going to continue to go in that direction, no matter what the pros do or don't do. Private clubs will continue to flourish. The overbuilding will get cut down. It's just the nature of business as opposed to the golf business. So there will be a balance again over the next few years. But the game will continue to flourish at the recreational level. That doesn't mean it will grow at some astounding number. But if you do look at the statistics right now, one-third of the new players coming into golf are young women. So there isn't much programming mm-hmm. devoted, isn't mm-hmm. devoted to them. So I'm working with some people to create programming that's devoted to the recreational player and in terms of instruction, golf for women, golf for juniors, golf for seniors, golf for better players, golf for terrible players. So you need more. The mental game, golf for women. You know, so those things have to be addressed. There, there's a need on my side of the business to get the word out. But I think the game is going to be safe. The game is the one of the great experiences that you can have in your life. It doesn't matter if you play three holes or six holes or just hit pitches. I can get the same satisfaction by hitting 20 pitches in my yard, 35 yards, as I can by playing a round of golf. It's not always about rounds. You just need to be in touch with the game. You just want a club in I your hand. Even if you're just watching TV, put a club in your hand, grip it, regrip it. Just have one in your hand. Be in touch with the game in some way every day. It never has to mean 18 holes. It just can be anything. Go chip, go putt, go to a public course and chip and putt. But keep your hand in. That's not going to disappear. Just the excesses will go away. But the game at the grassroots level, for the people who are your colleagues, for the people who are like me who like to play the game, our relationship yeah. is going to continue. You're going to keep make, continuing to take care of the golf courses. People like me are going to continue to play them. The only change really is going to be that we'll be less interested in being influenced by golf on TV because it's not so interesting right now. Yeah. I You know, I have a good story for you. Because um, you mentioned banded dunes, and uh, when we were working on Pacific Dunes, Peter, uh, with Tom Doak, and you know during construction, right? And I was there a ton, hundred plus days, I think. Well, maybe not that many, but it was a bunch, right? Um, and uh, I remember that Tom was working on the 18th hole, and he was trying to kind of figure out some stuff on the landing area and the tee shot and all that sort of stuff on 18. And a few of the, you know, a few of the bigger hitters had been out. Um, you know, a couple of the guys that were working in the pro shop and stuff. And, you know, I know Tom had him hitting some balls. Tom was hitting some balls. Jim Rubino was hitting some balls. And I was, I was running a sand pro actually. I was, you know, just finishing some stuff, just helping out. And, uh, Tom waved me down and said, Dave, come here. And, you know, I play off of like a 14 that I can't ever play to, <laughs> you know, that's my, that's my game. Right. Cause I just never have invested the time. Uh, but I love it. You know, I, lo- I love it, right? Even though I suck at it, I love it. And he says, we go up on the 18th tee at Pacific Dunes, and he says, where would you hit it? And I said, well, I can't hit it where you guys have been hitting it. You know? And the, where I could hit it was was sloped funny, and it was going to be, you know, not a lot of fun. And I said, yeah, that's not good. And he, you know, and he said, yeah, I, I agree with that. He says, there's no reason we can't, you know, reshape that a little bit. Yep. 
on the short part, right? There's no reason for it to look like that. And I went, well, that would help me, you know, you know, and we hit some balls off the sand up there and, and, uh, you know, of course I hit it right where I said I was gonna, you know, semi trouble and, and we ended up, you know, ended up changing that quite a bit. And, it, and, the, and the whole thing was, you know, why hurt people? You know, why hurt them off the tee? Why, you know, we, I remember we had just come back from playing a, a Fazio thing in Cabo and uh, every tee shot was over the Barranca, you know, and for me it was just like, oh God, I got to swing out of my shoes again, you know? Um, and it just, it was okay. You're like, you know, I'm doing it, but it's, it's not fun, you know, it's not cool. And I remember on, 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 a, on another day at Pacific Dunes, just, I had a, <laughs> had a Callaway Rule 35 ball. I loved, I loved those balls. And, uh, and a, a newer Olimar driver. And I was just hitting, I was just hitting balls back and forth on the seventh hole, play from the tee to the green and the green to the tee, you know, just enjoying my time. And, uh, it was like some of the funnest golf that I've ever played. And so I, I, you know, I think people unfortunately haven't had that experience. You know, they kind of, they haven't had the chance to get out and just hit some balls and stuff. I encourage people to go to Top Golf and just eat some chicken wings and beat some balls. It's fun, right? Why not have it be fun? So that's the whole idea. Course a pop- I'll tell you, quick, that's the whole idea. Have some fun. Hey, yeah. Tell you a quick joke story. I, I was up in uh, Michigan and we went to go play Crystal Downs and Sardoke said he could join us. So he shows up with uh-huh. a ba- bag from like 1804 and, <laughs> and he had like eight clubs. I know that bag. And we get to yeah. the tee and he goes, uh, does anybody have a driver? And I go over and I look in his bag. Got no driver and one wedge. And so the whole day, he's borrowing drivers, he's borrowing wedges, he shot 4,000. But the thing that Tom understands is, and the really, really good architects of today understand is that recreational players miss their shots short, high, and right. And so that's exactly where you want to make sure they don't have trouble. Here's another thing that good architects do good architects keep the recreational player in mind and know that the average guy is going to miss almost every green. So what do good architects do? They give you a full 30 yards surrounding the entire green of relatively easy, straightforward chipping, no water, no crazy stuff. So when the recreational player hits the terrible second shot, but he's still within 30 yards of the green, he gets to play a fairly straightforward pitch. And that's a very under-recognized thing that great architects do is when you get around the green, they can make it a test for good players, but they can allow the 90 shooter to make his fives. And I think it's critical because if if a 90 shooter is just smart enough to try to leave his second shot where he's got 30 yards from somewhere around the green and not in a bunker, then he can play a straightforward pitch in one or two putt. And that's what we were talking about earlier with Sam Snead. If the 90 shooter shooter can leave himself a pitch of 50 yards or less, then he's going to have one on almost every hole. That's why the 30 to 50 yard pitch is so critical because the recreational player has one every freaking hole and good architects like Doke, good architects like Doke make sure that even if you're 30 yards long because you bladed one, you still have a straightforward chef, and that's what I appreciate about the people in your business who design them and appreciate about the people in your business who take care of them because 
if you don't understand, you and your colleagues don't understand what the architect had in mind for the 30-yard area around the greens, and then it's to be kept in a manageable way with, with decent lies and not too tight, you know, and nothing where the ball drops in. If you don't get your end right, then the architect's yeah. work was for naught. So that's the other thing that you people need to be congratulated on is understanding what the architect had in mind so that when you set it up, you don't start to make mistakes like letting rough grow in an area or adding a little yeah. pond that isn't yeah. necessary. So if you aren't bright enough to understand what the architect had in mind, you can't be as successful as you are yet. Everybody in your business does understand that. And that's why it's such a pleasure for us because you get it, you get the job right. Then you leave and we show up and it's a, and it's a beautiful stage ready for a performance. Well, and I think Peter too, that one thing that a lot of people forget about, you know, all of us, you know, turf heads, grass business people, we get to watch a lot of golf, right? If you're a golf course superintendent, you're out on the golf course, right? You see a bunch of golf. You see good golf and really shitty golf. And, you know, you're watching a bunch of golf. And um, and you start to see, you know, like what, you know, if you start to see people in in trouble in the same areas over and over again, you know, because of a, you know, a bad tree planting or an architectural flaw or a mowing line that isn't right and all that sort of stuff, you know, I think golf course superintendents now are a lot more empowered to kind of deal with that and work with that and, and it isn't, you know, it isn't hands off, right? We're, you know, we're speaking more legibly and clearly about those things. I spent a lot of time talking about communication with people and, you know, how to commu communicate that stuff. But we, you know, you talk to the average golf course superintendent, he's watched a ton of golf, he or she, right? A ton of golf. And he's <laughs> seen all, all kinds of players, <laughs> you know, from the best to the worst. And, and, uh. You know, it can make you a bit of an expert. It really can. Well, it doesn't, doesn't kind of. It makes you an expert. And I'll tell you another thing. <laughs> right. Another thing I noticed is that really good supers will tend to go out and watch some of the holes of the club championship, whether it's the A, B, C, or D flight, men or women, and the junior club championship, to see sure. how shots are playing from different skill levels and in different in competition and, in, and without competition. So... You're absorbing information every day about what players do and how frailty uh, enters into the equation, that there's a lot of things they can't do well. And then you recognize that if you prepare the playing surface in accordance with what the architect originally intended for this group of hackers, then you'll have done everything you could have done to prepare the table for, the, for those of us who are going to show up. I think that's There true. you go. Well, well, Peter, any final words? Anything else that we didn't cover that you want to say? Because well, uh, I'm, I'm I, sure I figure we've you have already run we run thirty minutes over your allotted time to begin with. So, right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say to you, this was fantastic. And uh, what I would love to do is to come back again in the not too distant future, certainly around major championships too, when things like course conditions and setup are particularly talked oh, about. I would love that. So, you know, yeah. please. Please include me on that short list when we have interesting events and interesting courses that are affected by weather or anything else. I'm always here for you. I, I like what you do. I know how you oh, feel about the yeah. game. You and I are friends. And so anything I can do for you and your colleagues in the game of golf, and if part of that means appearing on the show, then I'm in. 
uh, Peter. I, I really, I mean, I've just been the last few days I've actually been, you know, almost, I don't know if I really get nervous about these things, but, uh, but you know, the deal, like you're prepping and just getting ready to get, I'm like, man, I'm interviewing Peter Kessler. You know, this is a pretty big deal. So, uh, you saying that, man, it means the world to me. It really does. No, Thank it's you pleasure. so well, much. And it's easy, too, because you just have to tee up the ball for me. I, I, I'll run with it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, somebody with your kind of storytelling ability and as many stories as you have. Don't, really you worry your little, don't you worry your little heart. <laughs> All right. Well, that's Peter Kessler. And, um, man, Peter, again, thank you very much. And, yes, for sure, we'll have you back. Looking, for, looking forward to the next time, Matt. Wanted to say hello to all of you and, and your fans and your listeners and just tell you how much I appreciate the kind of work that you do, um, what you've meant to the game, what you mean to the game now. And uh, I'm very appreciative to have the opportunity to, um, to to let you know my thoughts on certain subjects that you're more expert in. And so thank you again for including me. And, and, and thanks to all of you who are listening uh, to me and Dave today. Thank you so much. How does it get better than that? <laughs> Listen, I hope that you guys were listening and that you were hearing how much regard that Peter Kessler has for us, for turf heads, for those of us in the business. Um, yeah, that was pretty astounding to me um, in the fact that he clearly his his knowledge of the world is encyclopedic, right? As far as just how much the guy knows and how much he remembers. I mean, if you hear the dates and all that sort of stuff that he just comes up with. Uh, I've also heard that he's one of those guys that remembers every shot from every round that he's ever played. That kind of thing. And uh, for, for me, those are bad memories, but I'm, for, I'm sure for him, those are really good. But at any rate, uh Peter Kessler loves golf course superintendents. He loves the game. He loves the service that the game's played on. It's clear that he has um, deep, deep regard for all of us. Uh, again, I hope that you follow Peter on Twitter. It's just at Peter Kessler. And uh, he posts amazing stuff. And um, clearly he continues to be, even from kind of behind the scenes in his, in his, uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if he wants to say the word retired, but he certainly is influential. All right. Well, listen. The first episode of 2020 for the Turf Guys Zealot Project is uh, in the can, and I'm excited about that. I'm stumbling on my words a little bit because I'm still so astounded at the at the quality of the conversation I just had with Peter. But at any rate, we're going to have a good time. Got a lot of stuff planned. Got some interesting guests planned. And uh, um, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening, for uh, waiting for me to get this back and going, uh, for showing up here on TurfNet.com. Uh, please feel free to share this with anybody you can. It's it's free to the world. I'm Dave Wilber. I'm the Turf Guy Zealot. Take care.